Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Ignited Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Lawrence. I believe people and culture are the single greatest competitive advantage in any business. This podcast is a weekly dose of inspiration and practical how-to strategies for transforming the way we learn, grow, and perform at work. So get ready. You're about to learn from the best learning leadership experts on the planet. Let's get after it. On this episode of Ignited Learning, we have a very special guest, Mr. Adrian Overhalser. Adrian is the founder and CEO of Halo Learning Works. Now, Halo is a Hong Kong-based strategic marketing and organizational development consultancy that's been producing creative, practical, and dynamic learning and development experiences across Asia since 2003. On today's show, we're specifically going to be diving in to how Western leaders can better understand and appreciate cultural differences across Asia and how they can uh, not only assimilate, but become effective in what they do. So without further ado, let's welcome Adrian to the show. Adrian, thank you so much for uh, coming to the show. I am absolutely uh, honored and really happy you're here, my friend. Thank you, Steve. I'm happy too. For the audience, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to working in the um, intercultural sensitivity space. Came out here to Hong Kong in 1995 to work for a bank, uh, left Citibank in New York to come here. Hong Kong's a lot like New York, big and fast. And I thought, well, what worked for me in New York will work for me here. And if I look back at my first six months on the job, it became obvious to me, perhaps I wasn't being as effective as I could have been in the beginning. Everyone said yes to me. But I wasn't always getting from my troops what I wanted. I was head of sales and marketing in Asia. Mm. I had people in, from various countries, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, et cetera. A lot of yeses and sometimes not as much follow-up. And this perplexed me. I, I thought maybe that my style needed to be adapted. And I ended up sitting down with one of the bankers who I had become close to and asked him, gee, you know, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What can I do better? Right. And he said, look, you have a lot of things going for you, but you are a bit New Yorkish. You mm. are a bit Western. Uh, you're all those types of things that maybe don't work as well here. So you could, you could improve in certain ways. And he gave me some pointers. But it began for me then a process of slow adjustment or let's say uh, assimilation into the way things are done here in Asia. I mean, just as an example, yeah. um, I came out of a Citibank culture where things were very our, our motto is like consultative selling. People should be asking questions of clients to make sure that the solutions we provided clients uh, were needs-based, you know, mm. so you're not mis-selling. Um, so I had always been taught to ask lots of questions of clients. But when I came out here, I was told by bankers, well, you just can't ask those questions of clients. That'd be totally inappropriate. You've just met them. You haven't earned the right to ask those questions. I was like, well, how do you find out things about a client? Well, you have to spend time getting to know them. Yeah, I was like, really? So what would happen in New York in an initial meeting with a client would happen here after three or four or five meetings, perhaps. So you just need to be a bit more patient and go about it differently. Yeah. I became, over time, more adept at asking indirect questions, talking to people about things where I, were, I wasn't putting them on the spot. I wasn't asking them to divulge secrets that I hadn't earned the right to, to learn about yet. And that worked for me. Anyway, there were, uh, I put my kids in local school, just thought that would be an interesting experience for them. It worked yeah. out quite well. I began to make many local friends over time. And so I began to go a bit local. I am known yeah. here as Mr. Ho. And uh, I studied Cantonese and, and, and I had a lot of fun trying to go local. After all, I didn't leave New York City to come to Hong Kong and hang out with Americans. Mm. Uh, with all due respect to Americans. But I guess the real eye-opener for me was about maybe 10 years into being here in Hong Kong, I had the chance to, to work for a large bank. They approached us and asked us to put together a, a program that would help people around the world within their bank work more effectively together. They were right. pretty consistently doing things, uh, well, not the best way. They, they were running over budget and behind schedule 
quite often. They had these very clever people that they'd hired. They had a strong, uh, a good vetting process, if you will, of getting the best to join their bank. Yet, despite having all this great intellect and intelligence, they were failing. They couldn't figure out why, and they finally chalked it up to intercultural differences. People talk a lot about gender, sexual, and race orientation these days, and that's an important part of diversity. But of course, cultural or country diversity, national diversity is an important thing as well. We all know that diversity is a good thing because it produces better solutions and better outcomes when it's properly harnessed. But anyway, I've been doing this now for the better part of 15 years, working with companies, trying to get leaders in companies more sensitized to how they can lead their troops here, and to get the people within the organizations working more effectively together, because they invariably come from different backgrounds. So when, with your, one of your first clients, that major bank that was having some challenges with the team dynamics, is, yep. so I'm assuming what was revealed was this intercultural sensitivity, either lack of sensitivity or misunderstanding, and that was kind of the crux of the issue? Yeah, it was a, it was a general lack of awareness. People okay. hadn't looked in the mirror long enough to understand that the way they were doing things wasn't appropriate. I mean, we all have our comfort zones, right? We grow up where we grow up. We yeah. think that's, many people think that's the way the world is, or the way we do it where we are is the better way. Many leaders come to Asia because they've done very well in their home markets. They come to Asia for their first time because it's some sort of international grooming experience. Yeah. And they come here, and what's worked for them historically suddenly isn't working as well for them when they get here. And that's for a good reason, because people are different. And I remember there was one study by the conference board in DDI, uh, something like 13,000 professionals uh, a couple of years ago. And they asked all these leaders, you know, how do you rank yourself? How do you feel? And most mm. people felt that they were pretty good at leading. And mm. that's why they were in their positions, because they were, but in their home markets. Once they took people outside the comfort zones and put them in new markets, that's when the trouble began. Yeah. That's when people suddenly, I think the number was something like 34% of those interviewed said that they felt less competent leading across countries and cultures. That was their Achilles heel. So when you look at the challenges with cultural sensitivity and kind of navigating and working in a diverse, in a diverse landscape, what specifically is the challenge uh, about this cultural sensitivity that leaders face? Part of it is, I said, as I said before, it's awareness. Okay. People don't think it's a big issue. They, they say, well, you know, the world is in, uh, increasingly globalized. You know, everyone has the same bodily functions. We're all human beings. We're reasonably homogenized now. We're trending towards uh, this homogeneity. So differences aren't that big a deal. Come on, let's just get on with it. So it's worked for me in the past. We'll work here. And then it doesn't. So that's, that's kind of a, a blind spot. I mean, most people tend to look at the world through the cultural glasses they wear. Right. And they, they assume that what's worked for them in the past will work for them in the future. And that's because people tend to be reasonably ethnocentric. Ethnocentric, right, right. People tend to be ethnocentric in their thinking. It's a kind of denial that they think that the way they do things is the best way. Whereas mm -hmm. the concept of ethno-relativity is probably the more effective way of looking mm -hmm. at you know, acceptance and adaptation, ultimately integration into a new culture. It's the, you're saying, so one of the biggest challenges is just recognizing that we all have blind spots and yeah. that it, there's a default position of to see the world the way we see based on how we've been brought up or the, the domain, domains within which we've worked. Yeah, um, most of us as kids don't have any choice in how we're being raised, mm -hmm. you know. No matter where you were raised, you are, by default, what your parents generally have been. And uh, whether that's religion or, or ethics, morality, etc. There are many influencing factors, but parents and families tend to have a certain role there. Or the work we do is helping people become more aware. Because once you acknowledge that there are differences, you can begin to talk about ways to bridge those differences, to be more effective. You know, I mean, diversity, if it's a good thing, how do we maximize the opportunity, maximize the outcomes, and minimize those challenges? Because we know the challenges exist. We just have to come up with a way to make them not dominate, right? Challenges that are dominating restrict the organization from performance. 
in order for a leader to be successful, what aspects of cultural diversity do they need to be thinking about? Well, look, there are a lot of uh, social anthropologists who study this space. Mm. Um, people like Hofstede and Trumpenars, these are the, the classically quoted masters, the gurus who mm. pioneered the work back in the, in the 70s and 80s, looking at what, what divides us all. And um, there are some common dimensions that are referenced. I mean, one of the standard ones that I see quite often is that most Westerners tend to think in a very egalitarian way. So you have egalitarian thinking versus what would be known as hierarchical thinking. So in the West, we, we tend to believe everyone is uh, created equal and that everyone in the conference room should be contributing equally. So you're invited to a meeting and everyone will get involved. Here in Asia, many people believe, well, the boss, Dai Lo, means the big old man. Um, he's the guy in charge. He's gotten there because of his years of service and loyalty to the company and people he knows, et cetera, et cetera. And that person tells you what you should be doing because people tend to suffer from what I would call small potato syndrome here. They wait to be told by the boss what to do. So a mm -hmm. typical meeting, people aren't equal in a meeting. They come to the meeting feeling there is a, a big inequality between them and the boss, but that's okay because the boss is the boss. So egalitarian thinking is great if you're in New York City or in the US or in, in Europe right. and you have a team that thinks the same way. But you put an egalitarian boss in charge of a team that's expecting hierarchical kinds of uh, command and control um, instruction, mm. you have people saying yes and no one, no one actually giving um, input when you expect them to. That can be very frustrating. And there are other dimensions as well. There are some standard ones. Uh, the fact is Westerners tend to be quite direct in your face. Uh, Asians view that as being a bit arrogant, a bit uh, inappropriate behavior. Asians are you know, generally speaking much more humble, more respectful, mm. um, more discreet in how they ask um, certain things. Or often they don't even have to say something. Maybe it's what they leave unsaid that's heard most loudly. So I agree. Uh, yeah, the, the what's, West, not, what's not said is the most powerful sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my wife, who's Japanese, refers to this as reading the air. Uh, she often says it's just so easy to hear what people are saying, but that's not what's always important. You know, we often say in the West, well, it's not what people say, it's how they say it. That's important too. You have to begin to feel, you know, the tone, what the people actually mean. But reading the air goes beyond that. It's like what people have left unsaid um, or reading between the lines. Yeah, that that's a special art. So in fact, when you're talking about capabilities, as we just started to before, or success factors for leaders, yeah. One of the things is empathy is pretty high up on the list in my experience, considering how what you say is going to be heard by somebody else. And also the ability to listen carefully before you speak. Westerners, I'm not saying all, but many Westerners tend to think out loud. Yes. That can be dangerous. That can be problematic with people who are more reserved and more contemplative. I watched my father-in-law and my wife have a discussion. My father-in-law will end speaking and there'll be a long silence before my wife decides what's the appropriate language for her to respond to her own father. It's not like a fast tennis game. We often think in the West that you know, quick repartee is, is rather clever. Mm. Asians, as you see in the movies, the stereotypical kind of Asian discussion, people go, hmm, they'll consider a long time before they respond to a question. What's the appropriate type of response to convey you know, the message I want? It's like in Japan, people never say no because that'd be very off-putting, very confrontational. It's often the same case in Hong Kong, for instance. People here will say maybe, which is probably a no. They may say yes, which might even be a maybe. Some cultures have many, many ways of saying no without ever pronouncing the word. <laughs> wow. Is that kind of like uh, how many definitions of ice the Eskimos have? Exactly. Exactly. Indonesia evidently has 23 ways of saying no. It's very clear to everyone in the room that a no has been said, but the word hasn't been uttered. But mm. everyone knows and nobody loses face and everyone can smile and then they move on. Mm. Yeah. I love that concept of uh, reading, reading the space. Reading the air, reading the air, yeah. I love that concept of reading the air. Other than exercising empathy, if I'm a Western manager or leader, working in a multicultural team here in Asia, how can I read the air better? Well, I think you have to spend time with your people. I mean, 
what I decided to do early on, what I was advised to do by one of my Chinese bankers, was to allocate a large amount of time to building relationships and building trust. Um, I refer to it often as a trust bank or a relationship bank. You have to make a lot of deposits before you have the ability to make withdrawal. Um, so let's say you make 10 deposits and you want your team to change their behavior. Well, maybe after 10 deposits of goodwill, you have the right to ask your team to try something new. I used to spend a lot of time getting buy-in. For instance, at the head of our bank in Singapore, I would often fly into Singapore and have dinner with him one-on-one just because I wanted to show him that I was willing to spend time with him and listen to him and learn from him. And then he would start to invite me out for lunches with the team. And I would sit opposite him and everyone would watch. And he would, he would ask me to eat things, which, well, for me, it wasn't really a big challenge, but for most Westerners, it would be a challenge <laughs> to eat. You know, and I, I remember the first time I was having stink bean sambal eating fish head curry off a banana leaf at uh, Sammy's on Dempsey Road. It's a civil servant restaurant. And everyone was watching because the, the head of our business there had a penchant for, for spice, as did I. But we kind of had a little competition going on. And we'd, we'd be sitting there with the perspiration rolling off our brow and the whole team be watching us like, who's going to give up first? Then we'd celebrate afterwards in the parking lot eating raw, raw durian, which was all quite an acquired taste. But doing that kind of thing, spending time with your people gives you a chance to understand people better, gets a chance to build those relationships, but also understand how people talk and how people think and how their way of, of communicating can be very different from yours. Remember, leaders who come in from other countries, people don't know who they are. They don't know, like, well, they must have done something right, they wouldn't be here. They must know someone important up the food chain. Mm -hmm. hmm. So how much should I expose myself to them? Because there could be downside involved in this, right? So Asians, in my experience, are quite risk averse. And mm -hmm. so if the entity is unknown, better keep a low profile. You know, I shouldn't be, uh, I, I shouldn't be getting too close or asking any inappropriate questions. Or, so it's safer, safer for me just to uh, kind of disappear into the background and, and, and not challenge and not speak up. And, and that's... Uh, that's funny because Westerners are like, well, wait a second. You know, I'm expecting my team to be involved and greet me, and, and people will be very polite. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and that's great, but that's you know, that's window dressing. It takes a long time to break through. I can I have many stories I could share if you and, want. And so, is what you're saying is that you've got to build that psychological safety where yes. people feel there's trust where they feel to express. Well, yeah. And in the beginning, there's just too much associated downside. There's risk. Like, why should I put my neck out? This could be career limiting for me. No, I, I cannot tell the boss what I really think. Oh, my goodness. You know, in the West, most people go to a meeting. If the boss asks them, what do you think? It's a chance for you to shine. Most people in Hong Kong, if the boss is at the meeting and hasn't asked you beforehand or told you beforehand, you're going to be asked a question. People will think, why is the boss doing this to me in front of a room full of people? Clearly, I'm not in his favor or her favor. Clearly, maybe I should be preparing my CV and looking for a job. I mean, people have these ideas. You know, it's what's viewed as a challenge by one culture is viewed as a huge risk by another. That's mm. really, and I've heard this from so many people. It's, uh, it's it just shows such dichotomy, right? Have you ever have you ever run into an experience where you're a Western leader working in a multinational uh, in Asia, and the leader? understands the importance of relationships and it takes time to build trust but at the end of the day it's still not appropriate to adopt a western way so i guess what i'm saying the leader themselves absolutely has to change versus taking the time and expecting the team to change mm. yeah um for sure i think there's a happy marriage here remember we're not talking about someone from the West coming to Hong Kong and going totally local in their style, adapting themselves 100% to being just like someone on the team. Okay. Um, they come with uh, certain expertise, certain differences that are important. Um, the idea is to try to meet the team halfway. So if you understand those differences, say, well, let's find that happy synergy in the middle. The thing I would say to people often is you can take advantage 
in a good way, not in a, in a naughty way, but in a good way of people here expecting this sort of command and control approach. If people come into a meeting waiting to be told what to do, you can go into the meeting and say, all right, today what I'd like for us to focus on is this and this and this. Yeah. And then you could say, look guys, I need to take a phone call. Let me exit the room for the next 15 minutes. But when I'm gone, I'd like you to do this and this. And when I come back, I'd like one of you to be ready to stand up and talk. And as soon as you leave the room, the pressure's off. The boss isn't watching. The people can perform. They've been empowered or enabled by the boss. They've been told what to do, but now they've been freed to do it. And when the boss comes back 15 minutes later, invariably one person will stand up and say, boss, we have three ideas for you. But they didn't have to do it in English, which is tough. Because remember, mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, English is not taught in the schools here anymore, unless you're an international school. You know, it's been Mandarin for quite a while now. So right. people's abilities, unless they've studied overseas, it's tough, you know, to perform in English in front of a boss, you know, it's, and you don't want to look bad in front of your peers. You don't want to risk looking stupid, right? Mm. It's a big loss of face. So giving people a chance, um, taking advantage of that small potato kind of syndrome mentality, saying, let me tell you specifically what I want you to do. So you set timeframes, you set deliverables. I often even put things in writing because I'm a strong believer in the law of physical evidence, which I've heard from so many Chinese colleagues over the many years, that once it's in writing, it's real, right? So right. Talk, is, talk is cheap. Um, <laughs> yeah, people will say yes to talk, but then a week later say, oh, are you serious about that? <laughs> yes, actually, sorry, I didn't send a memo out. There we go. Uh, let, let me ask you another question. What are the most common roadblocks that get in the way of cultural differences coming together and kind of really leveraging upon those differences to, to perform as an organization or individuals? What gets in the way? Part of it is this lack of awareness, this blindness that the differences exist. But the other thing is people just haven't considered the types of things they could do to improve team performance. They're mm -hmm. simple things sending out agendas a day before a meeting so people can actually look at them and study them and prepare their minds uh, about things that they may you know want to discuss i mean there, there's lots of low-hanging fruit available to leaders and to cross-cultural teams to to work more effectively and adrian what are what are some of those low-hanging fruit that a leader today could take and run with to kind of leverage the cultural differences within the organization the way I normally talk about it is I give people a list of things that are kind of attributes and I ask them to consider which ones they feel particularly deficient in. Because each of the, you know, it's, it's not how strong you are at something, it's your weakest link that holds you back, right? And so most people will say, well, I'm a pretty poor listener. Or like, maybe I'm too domineering, maybe I'm too dominant. So it, it really is driven by the, often the individual himself. And then we can focus on things that are tied tied to those specific weaknesses that they see. So, okay, so if you're not a good listener, let's talk about empathic listening. Let's talk about active listening. Let's talk about ways that, you know, let's stop asking people closed-ended questions. Let's start asking teams only open-ended questions, right, to encourage input. See what I mean? That's really interesting because, in my experience, it's very easy to unknowingly ask a lot of closed questions and realizing that the closed question kind of cuts off conversation and it stops from knowing what, what people really think. And just that shift of asking open questions that is going to tease out or let you know, people's own opinions emerge, I think is really helpful. I think one of the failures of many managers or leaders is that they go into a conversation and they wing it. They don't think about what the outcome is that they want. Mm -hmm. If you go into a conversation and you think about, well, I would like this as the outcome, what types of questions do I need to ask to help drive the conversation in this direction to produce the outcomes I want? Well, if you spend some time doing that, you can actually then begin the conversation in a way, encouraging people to get involved, to give you, through open-ended questions, input, and then you facilitate or direct the discussion, and you end up, hopefully, at the outcomes that you're looking for. Um, but if you just go in and wing it, maybe you'll get there, maybe you won't. Um, it just mm. takes a little bit of time. In my experience, the people that I've dealt with in leadership positions who, who before an interview or before going on camera, spend, say, hours preparing, thinking about the types of questions 
tasks and types of answers that they want to deliver fare much better than people who go in and only very seasoned, seasoned people can go in and wing things and, and, and get it right. Adrian, you mentioned that there are some specific characteristics or traits that you ask your clients to rate themselves against in terms of cultural sensitivity. Can you give our listeners a sense of what that list is? What do people, what do I look for? Things like uh, mindfulness, um, patience and tolerance, listening skills, adaptability, so ability, ability to adapt. How willing are they to learn? You know, how flexible are they? How confident are they? Some people don't feel confident. They feel confident in their home market. But once they come here, confidence kind of diminishes. How, how motivated are they? Or how good are they at motivating other people? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Having open communication. I mean, I have a long list here of many different things. But when people look at this, they normally say, well, I could probably improve in one or two areas. Mm. So mm. You know, being curious. This is an interesting one. I've had people talk to me. I was talking about cultural awareness. And they're like, well, you know, when I meet with someone from Hong Kong or from China, I don't know what to talk about. I can talk about business. I say, well, some people don't want to talk about business when they first meet you because you haven't earned the right to talk about business. So mm -hmm. you have to have small talk. You can maybe spend your meeting talking about other things. Well, what do we talk about? I said, well, you can just be curious. Say, you know, it's my first time in Shanghai. What an amazing city. Can you tell me about it? I know so little. You know, always show uh, humbleness, right? Humility, right? So mm -hmm. um, you can get people, generally speaking, to talk about where they're from or what their traditions are or what they like to eat. There's so many things, but people often say, well, I don't know how to, to ask those questions. Um, so just be curious. So curiosity ah. is a good thing. As long as it's not too direct, you can't ask people straight away about their families or their kids or certain things because that would be, well, that would be inappropriate. Out of that list of characteristic traits, what are the ones that normally pop up in terms of areas to work on? When I talk to seniors, they'll often admit that their listening skills could be improved, certainly across cultures, that their curiosity could be improved, that they should be a bit more mindful of local customs and habits. Uh, simple things, like when you're eating, um, not doing things which would be viewed as inappropriate by locals, such as sticking your chopsticks in a bowl full of rice, which looks like incense at a funeral. Those, those answers are really interesting of the common ones that pop up. What do you think is the, what's the one characteristic or trait that is kind of hard for uh, executives or leaders to get their head around? You know, it's easier said than done. The hardest thing for most executives that I speak to is showing patience and tolerance. It's a virtue, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, they're under pressure to deliver results. They have a lot of people asking them in tough markets to perform. They want their team to get on with it. Yet they've been told they have to invest time in nurturing relationships and building trust and, and all the activities that would support that. Yet, most organizations tend to think on a monthly or quarterly basis. And so this kind of long-term investment in, in your people, showing tremendous patience and being tolerant of differences can be really tough. Wow. Yeah. So what, what advice would you give to manage that tension? I've told people, look, don't, do, don't be too hard on yourself. Everybody who comes from another country to work here is faced with similar challenges. This is your chance to, to shine. You just have to be a little bit more patient with yourself. I think the problem is that, yeah, there's these pressures. People are being told to perform, but they're being also told to be, you know, culturally aware and, and to, you know, invest time. And it's really tough. So I tell people, you're not alone. You know, all companies with leaders face these same issues because most companies from the West put leaders here from the West in charge, right? That's just the way it works. You know what I actually tell people is I said, you came here for a reason, right? You came here for mm -hmm. the challenge. And I, I hope you came here also for the adventure quotient. Um, mm -hmm. So you need to accelerate the fun times to kind of counterbalance the pressures in the office. Well, mo most, most people are so stressed out by work 
and then they work crazy hours and then they have no time for any fun. I was like, that's totally wrong. Nobody wants somebody to come here and work like a maniac and be an unhappy camper, right? Because ultimately that leads to all sorts of failures. What you need are people to find balance, work-life balance, and you're in a great place to have a great adventure. Hong Kong has all sorts of things you can do. So I encourage people to get up and out of the office and, and have some fun. Um, and that can help you blow off the, the pressure. Mm. In the area of cultural sensitivity, what's, what specific aspects of it are you working on now? We often get called in to talk about how companies can improve their methods. What that often means is they've taken some methods from the West and they're trying to implement them here and there are challenges. I mentioned earlier, like, you know, in sales, direct questioning techniques just don't work here. So how can you tweak some Western models to be more effective here? Normally the answer lies within the group. Um, you get down and you'll have a mixed group of people and say, well, what's working and what isn't? And, you know, how could we change our approach? And that's, that's something that's really quite practical and um, results-oriented, and people can go back to work right away. This, this, gets, this points, though, to a bigger issue, which we do quite a lot, which is talking about um, organizations forming team charters. So taking mm. 10 people from 10 countries or 20 people from 20 countries and saying, gee, we understand that diversity you know, should equate to uh, better solutions and, or better creativity and better solutions, but there are challenges. So how do we minimize that downside, maximize the upside? Well, how about if we set some rules of engagement um, from now on? So every time this team gets together to do anything, make a decision, um, brainstorm, et cetera, they've come up with some basic rules that no one's going to be left out, that everyone's going to have a voice, that the Westerns aren't going to dominate, et cetera, et cetera. And if they form this charter together and then let's say pledge to it, they can walk away with something they can refer to and something that becomes a, a baseline kind of behavior going forward. Every meeting that starts, people are reminded that guys, this is what we're all about. Mm -hmm. um, and we pledged, you know, to act this way. So let's, let's bear that in mind. I know I, I love that idea. Um, the, the effective leaders I've seen with team charters is they always bring it back front and center in team meetings to talk about the norms and behaviors of how we're going to operate and be yep. with each other. And there's normally, when it's, when it's a culturally diverse team, there's normally always some form of agreement about people sharing their views, why they're going around the table or people adopt specific roles. But one of the things I really like is halfway through the meeting, a lot of times the leader will say, what's working, what's not working against this charter, just kind of a check-in. Um, yeah, reality <laughs> check. Going through the meeting, right? I think it's great, especially when you have a, a company that has some good brand values. And so the team knows what the company stands for. You say, well, how can we translate this back into our, into our performance on a daily basis? You know, we say we're all about collaboration. We say we're all about innovation. But how can we, on a daily basis, whether it's through email or on the phone or in meetings with each other, um, stick to those values and, and get the most out of each other? And then people come up and say, well, you know, I think in every meeting we have to act this way or we should be doing this or we should be doing that. Or, and, and then we set it down. And that's, that's super rewarding for the teams when they do it because, as you say, they, they have a shared purpose then, right? And the trust has been, has been grown. Yeah. Um, there's an alignment of thinking and word and deed, which is what integrity mm -hmm. is all about, right? So, yeah. Hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting that word shared purpose and trust uh, um, one of the things I've been exploring lately is to what extent does shared purpose create trust? Because I've found often they're divorced. I'll find leaders saying, I need to, to, to build trust within my team. But one of the ways to build trust actually is to have a shared purpose. What is it we're all here to do together that we can't do by ourselves? And when everybody is very clear and aligned on that, you know, so in, in, on some level, by default, that actually creates trust. You know, trust gets back to this concept of face, right? That you earn face in Asia by your actions and your deeds. That there's alignment between what you say and what you do. You know, and what, 
what you do in the community, what you do in the office, what you do. I mean, you can, you can lose so much so quickly by acting the wrong way in Asia. You know, you can be a model of behavior for weeks on end, but then you have one of those evil guaylo moments where you lose your temper and yell in the office and everyone witnesses that and all is for naught then as a result. So trust is, is just so critical. Um, I think trust has to come before the shared purpose. Just having a shared purpose doesn't mean you're going to have people trusting each other. It's a nice goal to have. Okay, we appreciate that goal, but I'm not on board. There's no buy-in from me yet. How do, in your opinion, how do you build trust when you have a very culturally diverse team? There are methods of communicating that are more effective than others. Okay. Certainly, okay. certainly meeting with people face-to-face is probably the best way over time to build trust. The okay. investment of actual time, seeing people, traveling to see people, spending time breaking bread with them, mm. eating. Eating with people in Asia is super important. Mm. Everyone likes to eat any, everywhere in the world, but dining here is such an important thing. Business doesn't happen over meals. What happens over meals is the the bond grows between you and the other person. Um, it's, the, it's the rapport building that's going on. I joke about it, but actually breaking bread with people, I found to be a huge way of getting close to people in Hong Kong um, and Singapore and other and in China. Going out, they're amazed. Like, oh, you like to eat our food. One of my best friends here told me many years ago, if you eat our food and try to speak our language, he said, you'll never speak it well. He said, but you try, he said, you'll be so accepted so quickly. And so I've tried. I speak poor Cantonese, but I get great results all the time. I get encouragement that's just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy mm. fun. I, this, the smiles on people's faces when I walk into a small restaurant and ask for whatever I want in Cantonese, and they're, they, they're delighted. Spending time, being curious, getting to know people, breaking bread with them, or eating noodles with them. That's the more appropriate um, expression. If I want to be a culturally diverse leader, what is the secret sauce? When it comes to a special sauce, there is no one recipe that is in secret. There are a number of widely accepted dimensions and inherent spectrums of cultural behavior. For instance, hierarchical versus egalitarian dynamics, relationship versus task focus, team or collective versus individual approach, indirect versus direct communication, etc. Depending on where an individual is positioned on that spectrum of behavior, his or her intercultural challenges with others may be significant or not. It's not only important to know where one's strengths lie, but where one's weaknesses exist. Those are your weakest link when trying to bridge cultural differences. In that way, the recipe of a special sauce must be adapted to someone's particular circumstances. For example, um, someone who is far too direct in their approach may need to tone down their delivery, lest he or she inadvertently insult and alienate others. Someone who is extremely task-oriented may benefit from a more patient approach to establishing trust and creating a firmer basis for working together. If my boss is Western and I'm Asian, what is it that I need most from my boss from a cultural diversity point of view? Probably tolerance and the ability for your boss to understand that the way things work at headquarters isn't always the way things work away from headquarters. I've heard that a lot over many, many years. We tend to be reasonably myopic as humans, right? So what works at Citibank in New York City should work for Citibank in Hong Kong too. And of course that isn't the case because people are quite different. And there are lots of case studies on this, by the way. Mm. You know, it used to be a Citibank would create the branch experience in New York and then replicate it around the world. I found out that they were doing quite poorly in some countries. Then they decided to like go local. <laughs> By the way, mm. it doesn't happen. Things got a lot better. I'm a leader. Tomorrow, I'm going to go and leverage the cultural diversity of my team. What would you recommend? When I talk to leaders in, in diverse organizations, I asked them, you know, should we ignore cultural, you know, identity differences? And of course the answer is no. Do people expect leaders to adapt to other people's expectations, preferences, and norms? Like when in Rome, act as a Romans kind of thing? And of course the answer is they can't fully adapt. They've come because they bring certain strengths. 
can they influence others to conform to what they want? Well, they could do that, but that wouldn't be appropriate either. You're not going to get other people to change their spots. The question is, how do you develop some sort of third way, some sort of synergy or compromise or mutual adaptation or whatever mm -hmm. in a team, right? Yeah. And um, that's going to require people to stop certain types of behavior, to start certain types of behavior, maybe to continue things they're already doing. Um, but what it boils down to really is this, if you can acknowledge that there are differences and you can agree on what's appropriate behavior, then you can act with awareness going forward. Adrian, you, you, you mentioned you have some anecdotes uh, from working in this space. What's one of your top one or two anecdotes? There was one time <clears throat> we were consulting for a major U.S. bank that acquired another major U.S. bank. And the CEO came to Asia and he wanted to have a town hall meeting with all staff in Hong Kong. And I was um, <clears throat> advising on, on various things, including communications. I thought it was a great idea. The guy was a leader for many reasons, charismatic, you know, bold, impressive, smart. Everything about him was like, okay, great. Very American style. And he said, let's have this town hall. And I raised my hand at one point and said, would it might be prudent to have someone in the audience like with some questions just in case when you when you ask people to get involved because i assume what you just said is you're going to give a talk and then you're going to try to open up to the floor and and get people to like you know ask questions and by that it'll be like collective buy-in and alignment with the you know the the cause and he said yeah yeah he said well, we don't need any questions because people will well you know in our organization people will come forward I said, yeah, but what if they didn't? I said, wouldn't it be better maybe to be prudent and plant a few people with some questions? He said, I don't think that would be required. And I said, fair enough. I said, but maybe just can ask one or two people on the senior team here what they think. So he asked an elderly fellow on the team who was from Hong Kong. And that fellow, of course, was on the spot then. And he said, hmm, interesting suggestion. He said, well, I don't see a downside to preparing, just in case. And so it was decreed that we would plan some people in the audience with some questions in the event that silence was deafening. And so the CEO got up and gave his speech on that fateful day. It was great, um, very inspiring, goose pimples, at least from me, uh, listening to it. And when it came time to get the, the group involved, he said, let me open it up to uh, the question and answers now. The silence was was there, but suddenly one hand went up and somebody asked him a question. And I remember the CEO looked over at me like, see, you don't know our people. They can step forward and get involved. And this fellow stood up and said, you know, once the merger is over, will I still have my parking space in the basement? So it was not the kind of question the CEO expected. <laughs> and he couldn't, he couldn't answer it. And he said, well, gee, um, that's something we could certainly look into, but if we could elevate the discussion a bit, and then we signaled and one of the guys with the question stood up and started speaking and the whole room froze because suddenly it was a, a good question. And what was the CEO going to do? Like would lightning come down and strike this fellow for asking this, this serious question of the CEO? But because we prepared the CEO had a great answer and he tackled it very, very well. And the whole room, I could feel the temperature had gone suddenly cool, suddenly began to warm up again because the CEO didn't bite off this fellow's head. Mm. Um, and he actually thanked him for the question and congratulated, on, congratulated him on a good question. And as a result, the next person who asked, which was also planted, was met favorably by the CEO. And by the next time, we didn't have to have any more planted questions. Suddenly the snowball had started to roll. And people said it's safe to get in the water. This shark won't bite us, it's okay. And the whole spirit in the room changed. It was just lovely to see because he had earned the trust of his people in a short time. So we're talking earlier about um, the importance of listening, the importance of, of certain things. So I want to give you a story about etiquette and protocol. Hmm. Many leaders have asked me, what are some of the secrets to being well accepted, well received? you know, out here in Asia. And I often say, well, simple things um, can go a long way. I said, for instance, how you handle business cards um, is something that many people get wrong without realizing it. I said, you know, I've seen people throw business cards across tables. 
I've seen people take cars, not even look at them, stuff them in their shirt pocket, maybe even put them in their rear pocket, which is a, a terrible sign. Um, I watched my father-in-law many years ago take someone's business card in Japan. And he's an extreme, if you will, in terms of etiquette and, 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 and let's say politeness. But he'll take someone's card and really look at it as an extension of the individual. He'll hold it with both hands. He'll look at the person who's given it to him. And then he'll nod his head to the card and he'll feel the card. And he'll say, oh, he'll, he'll say the person's name and the title or maybe mention the office address. The texture of the card is important to me. So he turns it over carefully. He'll, he'll spend some time. It's kind of like a little courtship with the card because, as I said, this is an extension of the individual. You treat it with respect. And he'll do this for maybe 10, 20, 30 seconds even while he's beginning to have some small talk with the person he's just met. And eventually he'll take out of his pocket a special card holder, not for his cards, but for someone else's cards. And he'll open it and he'll put the card in like it's something sacred and he'll shut it. And only then will he turn his full attention to the person he's, he's meeting and, and going to talk to. It just shows a, a degree of formality and respect that's remarkable to most Westerners. Um, and given the success my father-in-law has had during his life, I, I look at this sort of activity, this sort of gesture as, as extremely important. One of the things I, I throw up early on is a, a very famous picture which can be viewed two different ways. It's either a duck or a rabbit, depending on how you look at it. 80% of the time people see a duck and few people, fewer people see a rabbit. But generally, given a minute or two, people can see both sides of it, right? Which is a great thing about human nature is we have on occasion the ability to see things the way other people view the world. And so I say, well, what's right? Is it a rabbit or is it a duck? And people say, well, it's both. There's not, no right or wrong here. It's just a question of perspective. And I'll say, great. So, you know, how does this, what are the implications of this? The fact is we, we tend to see things as because we have our cultural glasses on and we tend to think the way we think, see things is right. So I often talk about how in Hong Kong, when you move here, you're going to experience duck and rabbit moments because people who you're dealing with on a daily basis, whether it's in the office or whether it's on the street or whether it's in a government facility, wherever in a restaurant, you're going to have a moment where you're wondering what's going on here. The person just doesn't seem to understand what I'm saying. And it's a, a huge disconnect because you're talking like a duck and they're thinking like a rabbit. And that's just the way people are. And so you have to say, well, we're different. So that's being culturally aware is being aware that there are, these differences do exist. We will often ask people to talk about common attributes because we tend as humans to generalize a lot. We tend to categorize quickly. And so I'll say to people, so what are some common Western descriptors you'd use? If you see a guy like me on the street, what would you think automatically? Oh, well, you know, Westerners are quite outspoken. They can be quite loud. They can, you know, they're party animals. There are a number of different things will come out. Normally the list is generally positive. People don't get too nasty. But they'll come up with 20 things that are, by and large, broadly speaking, um, kind of generalities about Westerners. Fair enough. And then I'll say, well, what about how Westerners view Asians? And they'll come up with 20 or 30 descriptors. Well, you look at them side by side, they're actually quite different. So what was direct and outspoken for a Westerner is humble and, and discreet and uh, respectful for someone from Asia, generally speaking. Um, there's some things that stick out quite a lot. For instance, this whole concept of harmony and non-confrontation is really, really big in Asia. So it's not appropriate to confront, not appropriate for people to be subjected to what would be an unharmonious situation. Whereas in the West, people like to challenge and to, to, you know, to question and to, to see if they can win the argument. Anyway, when you come up with those descriptors at the end of the day, people will say, well, gee, we do appear to be quite fundamentally different. Then we talk about what are the drivers of that are. And some of the drivers, so the iceberg model is something that people talk about. When you go to a new culture, there are certain things that are overtly obvious. You land in Mumbai or you, not so much in Hong Kong, let's say, but you go to someplace which is quite exotic. It's mm -hmm. the, the smells in the air, the food, the clothing, the architecture, the things that are quite obvious about a new place 
are the things that most people tend to recognize right away. That's easy, that's overt behavior. Most people don't have the curiosity or the time, perhaps, or the interest to dig down and say, well, what drives those behaviors? Why do people eat those foods? Why do people dress that way, et cetera, et cetera? Um, that's what takes a bit more time. And if you have the ability to actually get down to that kind of thinking, then you can become far more culturally aware. It isn't like, oh, they eat chicken feet in Hong Kong. It's like, but why do people here eat the entire chicken? Because, et cetera, et cetera. And you, and you have a, more, a deeper understanding of what drives that behavior as opposed to the superficial. Adrian, what are some cultural sensitivity essentials if you're to be an effective leader? First and foremost, you have to be agile. You have to be able to adjust according to other people's reactions. You have to be able to read the situation and know what's appropriate or not appropriate in terms of behavior and what you're gonna say. You need mm -hmm. to be fairly tolerant of ambiguity. You're not gonna understand everything all the time and if you seek clarity too strongly, you may be offensive to others. So mm -hmm. tolerate it, be open-minded, show respect of other people's cultures. Also mm -hmm. be aware of your own cultural preferences. We all have them and we tend to stereotype, which is not a good thing. Um, so I would say, try to be non-judgmental when you're with other people. Don't, don't finish their sentences for them, don't interrupt them. Maybe practice different communication styles when you're talking to people as well. Um, we talked before, before about closed-end questions, open-ended questions. Um, you can paraphrase, you can use different ways to make sure people have understood what you've intended to, to communicate. And ultimately, I guess it comes down to just being patient and being tolerant. Um, these are good virtues. Adrian, I really appreciate all this wisdom you've been sharing with us today. But unfortunately, our time together is coming to a close. So I'd like to ask you, how can people get in touch with you if they wish to know more about the good work that you do? Yeah, well, I can be found at A Overholzer. That's A Overholzer, O-V-E-R-H-O-L-S-E-R, -E at Halo, H-A-L-O, Learning Works, W-O-R-K-S dot com. Adrian, thank you so much for your time, um, for your insights, your wisdom, your nuggets. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Mine too. Thank you. Speak to you soon. All right. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Ignited Learning Podcast. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at ignited-learning.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.